is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Hello. Good afternoon. Michelle Stanley with you this hour. For those who love their hot chips, we've got some good news for you about the national potato shortage. It's not this spring we've just had, it's actually the spring before that was where the problem happened and now the companies have started on the fresh New Year's crop so the problem should go away in the next month or two. What a relief. You'll get hot chips on your plate before one o'clock. Also today, I want to hear how you wind down. Whether it's at the end of harvest, muster or just a long day in the paddock, 0487 1057. How do you wind down and let go of the day? You'll meet a couple of farmers who are winding down from harvest by hitting the stage. We kind of just had, yeah, rained out and harvest one day and we're like, oh, let's set like the old drum setup that was at home up and in the music room we started like drinking beer basically and playing and like mucking around and then it sort of like was fun so we just kept doing it. That's how every good story starts isn't it? Just drinking a few beers 0487 991057 How do you relax and let go of it after a long day or a long season of work? Let me know before 1.30 you'll hear about that rural band Old Mervs and how farming has impacted their story. That coming up before one o'clock. Get in touch today. 0487 99 1057. First up this afternoon, as Lunar New Year celebrations kick off this weekend, you might be disappointed to hear there won't be any local pomelos on the market. Pomelos are a citrus fruit. They're a fair bit bigger than a grapefruit, but they're a lot sweeter. They're sold bright green and they're often sold ahead of the Lunar New Year because they're presented as a gift But with some hot weather to end 2022, pomelo farmer Han Sheng Sia says there's no more fruit around. I headed out to the Darwin rural area to find out more. We we usually have Chinese New Year pomelos, but we don't this year. You want to open one up for your try or you want to... Oh, happy to if you... Yeah. Are these ones that we have in our hand ripe? Yeah, they're ready to go. Yeah, right. In the territory, because it's so warm, they don't go yellow. Okay. So I use the key method. Oh, now I can smell it. Oh, yeah. This is... Oh, wow. Smells like a, a good citrus, huh? Yeah. Let's have it. Oh, my goodness. It smells delicious. Anyway, just oh, eat the little wow. pebbles. Yep. Which is a bit juicy. Oh, very juicy. Hmm. I expected it would be really tart and sour. Some varieties are. Right. Um, this one isn't. No. This variety good. is what we sell. This is our main crop. Help yourself. There's plenty here. <laughs> We've just cracked open a pomelo, and you would usually be getting these guys prepared for Chinese New Year, but that's not going to be the case this year. No, unfortunately, it wasn't. Um, like similar to the durian we spoke about earlier in in the couple of weeks ago, that we um we thought we had a very good flowering uh, in about October, September. It was prolific as well, and then unfortunately the weather was so warm that it just dropped on the ground and we didn't have any fruit. So we have very little fruit for the Chinese New Year market, so we decided this year not 
just in any they are currently now flowering again so we'll hopefully hopefully have some pomelos for the april may season for us and that will be back in sit back kind of in normal sync again what does it mean for you not to have fruit for the Chinese New Year? It tends to be quite a, a lucrative market, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's uh, it's it's where you were to polish up the fruit, present it to someone, and they can actually use it uh, to to get a gift for another pres- for a person. Unfortunately for us this year, it just wasn't there. Um, so the market itself, it, it it's quite in demand. You know, we'll get a few dollars extra per kilos versus a standard pomelo crop during the other time of the year. Um, and right now, it's just, yeah, it's, a, it's an idea that we, we want to forget. <laughs> In terms of the, the quantity of fruit that you would usually have had at, you know, the, the end of 22, beginning of 2023, how much was your crop down? Uh, probably about 90%. Wow. It, it was literally, we, we had... We would get maybe we were probably about five tons, six tons of pomelos down during the during the time of the year, and then this year we've probably packed away maybe uh, it will be less than five hundred kilograms. That's significant. Yeah. And it was not a great year for mangoes. It was not a great year for durian. And and I I don't want to rub salt into the wound here, (laughs) Han. But how how do you keep the you know keep the gates open? How do you run a business when it happens? You just have to take it as a win. One year is, is is bad. Next year, you just look for next year. Just keep going. You know, you're, you you have to smile and say, yeah, well, we'll take a, a lighter year this year. The the crop's a lot lighter, so it means we'll take a lot easier. We have to worry so much. Um, so in general, that it's been okay for us. You know, we 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 were concerned about labour issues. So in terms of that, in, being a lighter crop, we didn't have to worry about labour because we don't have to have we don't have anyone to hire to harvest the mangoes as much. So we didn't have to hire as many people to do other stuff. So we have more free to do these stuff ourselves. So I guess there are silver linings. Correct. Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, that was one of the benefit for this year. Just take it as a, a year that we we decide to be a lot more relaxed and more, more easier. So if we look towards April, is it? Can you say at this point how the trees are looking and and how you think the next crop will be? Uh, it will probably be pretty good. I have seen a few trees are flowered and they've got a lot of fruits. So potentially we'll be back to normal. We'll probably easily get about you know 10 tons out during April, April harvest. Um, and then after that, probably another round in, in about July. Where do your pomelos go? Uh, our pomelos end up going to Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide. Um, sometimes goes to Perth. Um, yeah, generally they go through that market, go through the Asian demographic who eat it. You know, you've had people who tried it, maybe go for it as well too. And there's plenty of demand. Oh, there's always demand for it. I mean, we we it lands in the market, and by by at three in the morning, by about six is already at the door. Wow. When when you think about the fact that there is a lot of demand for these kinds of fruits, although it has been a disappointing year, do you consider expanding your crops or you know trying to produce more fruit for the market? Yeah, we actually are expanding the pomelos. So we are planting. We got new plantings in the ground right now, which is areas that was cleared over there on the other side of the farm. Um, so we're putting more pomelos of the same variety in now. So, so hopefully that'll make it an easier, uh, bigger crop for us, and and a more supply the more demand to the market. How long until they get to maturity? Those new trees? Oh, uh, it's probably about three, four years away. How much of an expansion are you putting in? We're probably looking about maybe three, four hundred more trees. So just fifty percent more. So that's pretty significant. It is. If, if you're putting in three or four hundred more trees, I mean, it's a pretty confident move given that you've had a very average year this year. Yeah, no, it's on a gen on most years, it's pretty good. 
the crops there, the volumes there, and um, the three, four hundred trees will actually make the season longer. Being being a citrus product and a, and a pomelo, you can actually keep the fruit on the tree a little bit longer than you want it. There's a little bit more flexibility in, in, in harvesting these, these pomelos. You can harvest a little bit more greener and still quite tasty, whereas you have a little bit more riper, still be quite tasty. So we have an extra amount of trees. We can actually extend our season to get a lot more, you know, more more sales on the market for for the for the just consumers. And you're not worried about an oversupply either? No, not not for pomelos. Uh, pomelos are pretty pretty stable. Our, our variety has been pretty good. Um, the only issue that we have is competing against imports um, from from Israel and the USA. Some of our seasons clash with them um, when they come in, especially the Chinese New Year market. There's a lot of US and Israeli um, pomelos right now in the market, but they're generally a lot more cheaper than us. But the but we sell out a lot more quicker because of the quality products that we eat. Our fruit is sweet. Um, our fruit doesn't have that much of a tang or, or sourness that some of the other varieties do, and our fruit is heavier. You, you can tell a difference between the quality of an imported product and, and a local. Um, the imported products are a lot more shinier, a lot, they do a lot more waxing the fr- fruit to make it shelf life stable for the long transport from by sea from overseas, whereas we've got four days on transport, so we don't wax our fruit. So our fruit's a lot more duller, but our fruit's a lot more heavier. If I go into the supermarket and I see a beautiful waxy, bright pomelo, and then I see a more duller kind of colour, um, what what are your tips on how to pick a delicious one? Generally, to pick a, a, a perfect pomelo is to make sure it's green, um, or it's like a light green. But the number one tip that I always give to, to all my customers and my people who ask me to pick a perfect pomelo is pick the heaviest fruit there. The fruit can be the same size an immature pomelo is really light it's like 50 percent lighter than a mature pomelos and they're exactly the same size same same physical look externally same dimension but when you pick it up you can tell a, a mature heavy pomelo is when it's really heavy in the hand so it might not be a chinese new year with some australian or at least you know han's pomelos um but in april they'll be back on the shelf or they should be i hope they should be yes and have the customers hold out then what kind of weather are you needing to order from the weather gods in order to make sure that we do get some pomelos on the supermarket shelves in, in April? Don't make it too hot. Uh, rain's fine. Trees can handle the wet, wet weather. It actually helps it plump up more. Um, just as long as it doesn't um, doesn't have too much of a heat build up. I mean, like, like we don't have to build up in like we had in November, October, November. You know, it was just, it will be good. Beside that, you know, we're, we're looking forward to the the renewal of the season. Customers are always going to looking forward to us. So, yeah. Well, Han, thank you for your time on the Country Hour. Let's finish off that pomelo. Right, sure, no worries. We'll dig into it, Michelle. It's pomelo farmer Han Chung Sia speaking with me about the disappointing weather conditions late last year, which meant there are no local pomelos, no pomelos from Han's place at least, on the market for the Lunar New Year celebrations this weekend. Um, but you heard him say there should be plenty coming on in April to get your fix. It's 18 to 1 on the Country Hour. Here's Blake Shelton. It's Neon Light. Blake Shelton, Neon Light. G'day, I'm Bill West. Uh, been skippering trawlers in the NPF for 43 years and you're listening to the Country Hour. Quarter to one. Michelle Stanley along this afternoon. 
New South Wales has announced a relaxing of its rules for bee movements. After all states and territories agreed to declare the state's blue zones as varroa free, it means all states will reopen their borders in the coming weeks to allow the movement of bees and hives for pollination. Steve Fuller from the New South Wales Apiarists Association says there's been no varroa mite found in that blue zone. There's nothing being found in the blue zone. So we, we say that's a clean area. So that when nothing's been detected in an area, we keep it as a blue zone or a green zone, whatever, clean. And it's um, there's no traces, there's nothing at all. So it's a clean zone that we can work in. Right. So if, if beekeepers, and this includes beekeepers from other states who've been locked into New South Wales effectively, if they've got bees in the blue zone, they can now move across state borders or is there still some steps to be, to be, to be completed here? Yes, they uh, need to still do surveillance. They still need to um, apply for permits and traceability is a must in case something is detected later on. So they've got to abide by whatever's put in place. So if the government says, or DPI says that we can do this under a permit, then do everything. Do your washes, um, make sure you report anything unusual, and this way we can maintain our clean bill of health. And how many beekeepers do you think would be affected by this change? How many have been stuck in New South Wales, unable to move their bees out? Um, I'm not real sure on their actual figures, but I know there's been numerous ones because when you live close to a border, you, the border's only a sort of a drawing on a map. And um, with a beekeeper, you can go across a river and, and so on. So there's been a fair few people that have been stuck. So does that mean people who are breeding queen bees particularly can now move queen bees out of New South Wales? Because we are a big producer in New South Wales of queen bees for other states, right? Yes, there is still conditions on the movement of queen bees. My understanding at the moment is that the New South Wales border per se isn't just completely relaxed. At the moment, it's only the Victorians that can actually move, but we're trying to get it, and it's going to take a few more weeks. So it's not easy to um, just say, oh, the border's open. We've still got a little few more steps yet before everything's open and running smooth. What will it take for uh, free movement to be possible for people even in the purple and the red zones? Um, We've got to actually show that we are absolutely clean. So that's three years. Three years of no detections, nothing. In the meantime then, how much of the industry can enjoy free movement, do you think, in New South Wales? How many? Would it be 50% in those red and purple zones that are going to have to wait three years? Um, Well, the people in the red and the purple zones and I am actually involved in that here on the north coast. I've had um, about 106 hives euthanized here in the red zone, and I still have 500 um, odd hives tied up in the purple zone. And that is so that I can, the purple ones, um, so I can fulfill contracts to my growers that I have contracts with. Uh, Some people euthanized all their bees in the purple zone and the ones that have lost them in the red zone, so they have the right that they could actually start up in the blue. So they'd have to move? They move, or you can, um, today with the vehicles we have, sometimes it's not that far. The biggest problem is when you have the actual extraction shed in, a, in one of those zones. That's when it becomes awkward. Would you say the industry is almost back to normal then with this announcement? 
No. No, we've got a long way to go yet. And this is don't let your guard down. This is where uh, if you're going to become commonplace, then you will find that if there, if we have missed it, it could bite us on the rear end real quick. Steve Fuller from the New South Wales Apiarists Association speaking with David Clawton. 10 to 1 on the Country Hour. Livestock prices across Australia have dropped dramatically in the past six months, and one forecaster expects they may continue to fall. Rob Kelly is the Managing Director of Agora Livestock. It's a free mobile app which provides sale yard reports and the prices that abattoirs, feedlots and exporters publish for their suppliers. He crunched the numbers comparing prices in June last year to this month, and he found live export cattle dropped 22%, Lamb dropped 20% and goats went down 63%. Rob Kelly says usually at this time of year, prices would be picking up. Look, it's probably we normally see a bit of pressure heading into Christmas and then this January period is where we see prices pick up and we're not seeing that this year at the moment, though there is a bit more support coming in. But look, at um, the last six months in particular, we've just seen things come off dramatically. When you crunch the numbers, were you surprised by just how much the prices have fallen away over that sort of six-month period? Yes, I I am in percentage terms, and I think it's important to look at it in that respect because if you look at the overall just dollar per head drop, you probably miss out on what's actually happening at a farm gate level, which is, you know, that decline is probably coming largely off the margin that the farmer's going to make. And, Rob, the story for cattle, if we're looking at steers... And, you know, taking a, a look from the north to the south of Western Australia, so incorporating the, the live X market as well. If we're looking at a 300 kilo beast, down 42% since June last year. What's the yeah. story here? Yeah, well, again, I think just a, that's probably more of a limited supply. And I, and I think a lot of the buyers probably feel like there was a lot less supply than even what MLA were reporting earlier in the year, but we're just now seeing a lot of the wiener sales coming on. And again, with the processors having that same issue of not being able to put necessarily full capacity on, there's this oversupply happening at the moment. But that's been a um, an ongoing situation for you know, a couple of years now. It's a much slower rebuild for cattle. And on the live export side, look at um, you know the market's come off a lot, but we're still you know struggling to be competitive into Southeast Asia, and that's going to that's going to keep pressure on prices at the moment, you know, coming from sort of five bucks live weight middle of last year down to the latest prices we'd seen of three ninety a kilo. And is that are you expecting that to remain steady at around that three dollars ninety a kilo? I have trouble at the moment seeing how it will get higher. I mean, I can see that there's people with good demand, like the, the live exporters seem to have good demand at that level, but but I don't see them being able to keep pushing stock into export markets at that level. So I feel like there could be a bit more downside there, but you know, maybe hopefully I'm wrong. That's Rob Kelly from Agora Livestock speaking with Belinda Varischetti. So live export prices down around 22% from June last year. A bit, or much bigger fall in goats down 63%. Lambs and mutton also down quite a lot. Seven minutes to one. Australia's potato shortage should be over within a month, according to a South Australian potato farmer. Fish and chip shops and other hospitality businesses have been struggling to source enough hot chips since December. 
because of potato supply issues. South Australian farmer Terry Buckley says the supply issues are to do with the previous season's crop and they should be sorted soon. French fry potatoes are only grown for six months of the year, so we normally plant them in the spring, harvest them from January, February, March, April, May and perhaps into into June for some places. And then the remainder is put into storage sheds and they are then used for the, the next six months. And that's why we have the trouble we have now, because it's not this spring we've just had, it's actually the spring before that was where the problem happened. We didn't get enough spuds grown, particularly in Tasmania, and then they had a terrible bad thunderstorm through the middle of the potatoes in Ballarat all of which reduced the yields so then they had to get into the storage sheds earlier than you'd like and then the storage sheds have run out and that's why the problem always shows up around Christmas time and now the companies have started on the fresh New Year's crop so the problem should go away in the next month or two. Have there been any similar problems with crisp potatoes? crisping industry they were able to just struggle through with potatoes they've been having to cart potatoes from atherton tablelands to adelaide to keep going and source potatoes from everywhere they possibly can so i think if you buy some crisps at the moment you may well be a bit disappointed with the quality you see in your packets but they've been having to make crisps out of anything they can find and uh within you know another month or something that should improve again as well So there's been a lot of confusion about this chip shortage and people wondering why you just can't take different types of potatoes and use them. Can you explain a little bit about the different sorts? Well, there's crisping potatoes, there's French fry potatoes, which is your hot chips, and there's fresh market potatoes. And now they are so different, they might as well be potatoes, onions and carrots because we very rarely cross paths. They all have specific varieties and those varieties are owned by the various companies that we grow them for. And then they're grown in different locations and they just have different qualities, basically. Obviously, the French fry ones are long and thin, the crisping ones are round, and the supermarket ones obviously have to look very nice. So they're very different. And what potatoes are you growing out here? So we're all processing potatoes here. We do crisping potatoes, French fry potatoes, seed potatoes for next year, and we export crisping potatoes to Asia for, for their crisp market. And how's the season been going? going pretty well at the minute we're a month late on most of our potatoes and where we really should be and this is what happened last year which has sort of led to the shortage basically the spring was cold and wet and so we do rely now on a very nice long good autumn otherwise we're not going to be able to get them finished off as well as we'd like to but at the moment they look pretty good could the same thing happen could there be another shortage or are conditions looking better this time around We do need a good autumn to get the potatoes finished off and there were a couple of other factors as well. We used to send the wedges from here to New Zealand, they don't make any wedges there and they used to send us fries back and during the pandemic there's been no refrigerated containers available to ship them across so the potatoes we'd normally get from New Zealand were not able to come across and there were poorish crops and issues in Europe and America so they didn't have any spare potatoes to send so it was a perfect storm that affected everyone this time so it's unlikely that you'd get that affecting everyone next time so you can never say never with agriculture but we just hope that we've got it right and we'll have enough. South Australian potato farmer Terry Buckley speaking with Elsie Adamo and yeah hopefully some good news hopefully those chips back on the plates very very soon it's three to one on the country hour the department of health is warning territorians to protect themselves from mosquitoes 
as their numbers rise following those monsoonal rains. Dr Nina Karutz explains. We've got a lot of rainfall or had a lot of rainfall across the whole of the NT and that brings out the mozzies and especially the ones that are active um, after sundown throughout the night, night and early in the morning and they're the ones that can potentially um, transmit the Murray Valley encephalitis virus as well as in the top end um, the Japanese encephalitis virus as well and then we've got Ross River on top of all of this. So therefore we are asking people as we usually do to make sure they don't get bitten by mosquitoes to cover up with long sleeve shirt, long pants, light colors because uh, mosquitoes are attracted to dark colors. Um, Use the insect repellent that are proven to work and if you can, stay away um, after dark from mosquito-prone areas or all the wetlands. However, if you are out fishing, there are also other protection measures like the old um, or good old mosquito coils and the mosquito lanterns are widely available. And because we now also have um, Japanese encephalitis virus in the top end, um, we are urging people who are in the high-risk area to actually get vaccinated. So there is a vaccine out for that virus. It's highly efficient. So cover up and get vaccinated if you can. When you say people in the, in the areas should get vaccinated, what, what exactly? Where exa- is that the whole of the top end? Everyone on the top end should get a vaccine? No, so it is communities um, who are very close to extensive wetlands where we also know there's a lot of water birds, there's feral pigs, and um, there are the mosquitoes that can transmit the um, disease. So all of these are involved in the transmission cycle. So the high-risk area is pretty much um, a strip along, or a 100-kilometer strip along the NT coastline. So on the um, NTG government website, if people want to look it up, under Japanese encephalitis, there is an image of that map so people can see exactly if they are in the high-risk area or not. That's Dr. Nina Karutz from NT Health. She was speaking with Adam Sit. Adam Steer wanting you to cover up and protect yourself from mozzies after all that rainfall. We're heading into the news now, catching up with the Bureau of Meteorology after that. It's one o'clock. G'day, I'm Lisa Pepper and I'm in here at Darwin Port where we're currently in the process of loading a couple of thousand head onto the Greyman Express for live export. And thanks for listening to the Country Hour. Hello, hello, Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. Nice you can join me. This next half hour, you're going to meet a couple of farmers who have swapped the tractors for the stage. And they're kicking off a national tour. But there's something in their farming roots. It's probably good to like come in with a country background, a sort of country aspect, I guess, because you're a bit more practical about things and yeah, you sort of there get the job done and nothing's a problem, that sort of attitude and Yeah, try and be good people, I guess. You'll hear more from the old Mervs before half past one. First, though, let's get some weather with Billy Lynch of the Bureau of Meteorology. Billy, a bit of, well, the rain is falling currently, but what have we had in the last 24 hours? Yeah, good afternoon, Michelle. Um, We've had some pretty heavy totals up on the the Tiwi Islands. Um, So we've seen up to over 160 millimetres up there. Uh, Just bear with me. I've just lost 
the key figure I want to tell you. But yeah, so in the last 24 hours, um, it continues to increase. We've had 236 millimetres up on the Tiwi Islands at Pearl and Gympie Airport. Wow. Um, this is straddling the 9am cutoff. So in terms of the 24 hours to 9am totals, it's not doesn't show that much but if we just look at the last 24 hours from now and most of that has happened in the last six hours or so so um, there is a severe thunderstorm warning out at the moment um, covering that heavy rainfall and the risk of flash flooding um, so this is a ex <laughs> pretty extreme amount of rainfall um, to fall in a fairly short amount of time yeah this is the weather system that was around darwin yesterday and, and gave us the quite wet and cool cloudy kind of conditions so it's moving northwards um it's sitting just over the tiwi islands and just missing the coburg peninsula at the moment over the next few hours we will see the rain begin to ease across the tiwi islands and by tonight we should see this weather system contracted offshore so by then all the heavier rainfall will be across the arafura sea and we'll see some easing conditions but um, yeah, definitely. It's very wet. And then at the same time, this is south of that main weather system, but still a very unstable atmosphere across around the Darwin region and the northwest top end. So showers and thunderstorms are developing fairly quickly at the moment. Um, and they're not moving all that quickly either. So there is quite a heavy line from the, the base of the Cox Peninsula um, affecting the Stuart Highway between you know, Palmerston and Noonamah and then heading across to Middle Point um, and also migrating slowly northwards. So there is a fair chance that the city and the northern suburbs will see some of that rainfall in the next couple of hours. That's where most of the action's happening today, Michelle. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of it. Um, what's, what's that likely to do over the next, oh, I guess, is it, is it going to pass over the next day? Yeah, we're definitely transitioning into a different type of weather pattern from tomorrow. So, um, whereas today the focus is more on the heavy falls, by tomorrow we're going to see that the storms start moving a bit quicker and it's going to introduce the risk of um, some stronger wind gusts as well. So, um, the rainfall totals will become less, but the will go to more of a, a gusty wind kind of a pattern with thunderstorms um, affecting sort of the, particularly the, the western top end. Um, yeah, so step back today, the, the risk of thunderstorms is generally north of about Tennant Creek and extending down the, the western side of the territory through the Tanami and into the, the southwest corner. Um, tomorrow, the area of rainfall will be pretty similar. But, yeah, as I say, the risk of those heavy falls um, definitely is decreasing tomorrow. What's happening down in Central Australia? Yeah, well, um, for starters today, it's quite cloudy across the southwest, uh, across the Lassiter district. Um, a lot of that moisture has come from fairly active thunderstorms over Western Australia yesterday. Um, so, yeah, it's quite cloudy and we're seeing a few showers through that region, the odd rumble of thunder as well. Uh, and we could see a few millimetres, maybe up to 10 millimetres or so in that southwest corner today. But as for the, the southeast and into the Barclay, it's it's sunny and, uh, you know, quite hot. Temperatures across that southern Barclay region expected to be in the high 30s to the low 40s. 
and um, tomorrow it's going to be a bit of a similar pattern, so um, still be a bit cloudy across that southwest corner. Some of that cloud might extend across Alice Springs as well, um, but the the biggest risk of rainfall is still going to be north of Tennant Creek. Um, but again, these very hot conditions are going to persist through the Barkley over the weekend, and then they're going to spread further south across um, much of the southern half of the NT early next week. So warm next week for Central Australia. And um, is there any, I mean, yesterday, I, I don't think you gave us any good news, but is there any break on the horizon for that that region? Uh, perhaps by the end of next week, Michelle. So we are looking at a prolonged period, as I mentioned yesterday, of, of temperatures, you know, close to 40 degrees. Um so, yeah, low-intensity heat wave developing across the southern half of the Territory. It's probably towards the end of next week the chances of showers and thunderstorms are going to return. We'll get a bit more cloud cover, and that will begin to, to bring those temperatures down. Okay. Now, you've mentioned the severe thunderstorm warning um, for the Tiwi district at the moment. For those who are going to go out onto the coastal waters, uh, what, what's going to be happening out there over the weekend? Yeah, look, there will be a lot of rainfall off the north coast over the weekend. In terms of the wind strength, today it's westerlies of 10 to 15 knots, but reaching 20 knots you know, between about the Tiwi Islands and, and the, the northeast um, corner of the, the Territory. Uh, similar conditions tomorrow, so westerlies of around 15 to 20 knots across the north coast. If you want to get out on the harbour, probably about 10 to 15 knots. Um, but a couple of things to, to watch, especially for the Darwin Harbour and the West Coast, those gusty winds. So if you see a storm coming through, we could get gusts of around 40 to 50 knots. Um, so one thing to be aware of there. The other thing over the weekend, we're going to see an easterly push across the Territory from Queensland. So the Gulf of Carpentaria winds will begin to swing around to the east on the Saturday and then through the southern Arafura Sea, the north coast will also start to see an easterly switch, so a, a 180 reversal of the wind direction over the weekend. Goodness me, you have your work cut out for you at the moment, Billy. A lot going on, um, but thank you for that. We'll catch you next week. No worries. Thanks, Michelle. 13 past one, Billy Lynch from the Bureau of Meteorology. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year, with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Michelle Stanley along this afternoon. If you're a rural woman, a rural woman rather, and could use 15 grand for a project, a business or a program that you're running, it's time to get busy. You've got one more week to get an entry in for the 2023 NT AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. The winner will receive a $15,000 grant to support her project and complete a professional development course 
of her choosing. She'll then go on to represent the Territory at the National Awards in Canberra in September. Territory teacher Kylie Jones was last year's winner and says it's been a great experience. Uh, It's been absolutely incredible. It's honestly been one of the best experiences of my life and not only for my organisation but me personally and the growth I've seen from this opportunity has just been fantastic. And tell me a bit about your organisation, Raise Education, and why you entered the awards in the first place. So Raise is a not-for-profit organisation and a registered charity and what we do is we provide individualised education support to geographically isolated families across Australia What makes us special is that we not only work with the child to provide individualised support, but also the mum or the governess who's out on these remote properties to support them and help them feel confident and passionate in their role in the remote classroom. I think this has been such an important area. We're losing so many valuable workers out of vital industries such as agriculture because they just can't get the help they need for their children. So, yeah, that's been our raise education and um, we hope to keep expanding over the next few years. And taking away the the award last year, you also got a $15,000 bursary to put towards this project. Um, how has that helped you over the past year and what have you been up to? Uh, the bursary was such a, a huge help. We've um, used it to put towards some brand development to really um, I think, strengthen our image and also to bring together our ideas and values as an organisation. So today we're actually um, relaunching our brand so that we can share our new logo and we're just in the final stages of redeveloping our website to help us reach more families and, and raise awareness of the issues and difficulties these families can face living in the bush. Right, because it's a pretty new organisation, isn't it? You've uh, started this just in the past couple of years? Yeah, we were registered in the end of 2020, so it's been going for just over two years and, um, yeah, it has been such an amazing opportunity to be involved with and, um, yeah, we've seen huge growth in the last two years. What kinds of results have you seen from this so far? Um, our major thing we've we've been focusing on is literacy development in the primary school years, which has been really exciting. We've had a um, a couple of students who have been in grade two, grade three that have really struggled with reading and by giving them that individualised support, it's made such a difference not only to their literacy but also their attitude and enjoyment to school overall. And on top of that, uh, the support to governesses and parents so that they're really enjoying their role in the classroom. And the feedback from families, uh, what's that been like since you started? It's been so positive. Um to get families on board and to have so much great feedback um, in the two years, every family that's still been eligible with kids in the primary school years have come back on board. Um, we've had our numbers really increase over the two years and this year I think it's going to be even bigger and I think the next exciting thing is we're trying to move into the early learning space to be providing those learning platforms for for children and families right from birth all the way through so that they get that solid start um, in those first five years, which is absolutely crucial to a child's education. And this rebranding then, is that about trying to expand your reach and get to more families across the Territory? 
Yeah, definitely. So that more families are aware of our service and also to help support us, get our name out there to, to businesses and foundations and companies. As a registered charity, we, we work really hard. We don't charge families for the service we provide because the costs they face are just so huge just to provide their child with a quality education. So we're always out there looking for, for supporters and partners to, to work with us. So we're hoping with the really nice professional image now that we're ready to, to take on some quality partners. And with more support, more partners, where would you like to take the organisation this year? Yeah, so this year we have a major focus in the Central Australia region um, in the early learning space. We're going to be providing some mobile playgroups throughout the region as they haven't had access to this sort of service for over 10 years. Um, and then on top of that, we continue to grow our primary school program. I'll be spending um, a significant amount of time out on the road visiting families starting from um, the start of February. Um, last year, I did over 20,000 kilometres and visited 23 families right across from the WA border to the Queensland border and down to S um, the SA border. So um, that's on the cards again this year. So I can't wait to get out and, and actually get to connect with um my students and families. Sounds like there's a, a lot of great things to come for you, Kylie. Um, and for this year, the nominations are about to close for the Rural Women's Award. Why do you think women should apply? Um, it's just been such an incredible experience. Not only do you have access to that $15,000, but I think there's so much more to this award from the networking and opportunity to meet some incredible women um, and other like-minded professionals. Um, the exposure you get um, for your project is just incredible and it's just been such a great opportunity to clarify and refine the ideas of our organisation. So I couldn't recommend the experience highly enough. Kylie Jones is a Territory teacher and last year's winner of the NT AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. She was speaking with Max Rowley about her experience and nominations for this year's award close in one week on the 27th of January. If you're keen to find out more, head to the website agrifutures.com.au forward slash RWA. 21 past one. Here's Kenny Chesney. It's called Get Along. Kenny Chesney and Get Along. It's 24 past one. Hi, my name's Philomena. I'm from Acacia Hills Mango Farm and you're listening to The Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you. Good to have you along. At the end of a long day on the farm or working cattle, how do you wind down? How about playing live gigs with your band on an Australian tour? Sophie Johnson caught up with farmers turned rockers, David House and Henry Carrington-Jones from the indie rock band Old Mervs. Having just finished harvest on their family properties near Kojanoff in WA's Great Southern, David House and Henry Carrington-Jones are trading the header for the stage. They've just kicked off a national tour with their band, Old Mervs. The duo find balance in work life on the farm to playing live gigs and wouldn't have it any other way. Paddock to performance. We kind of literally went from a paddock, like we were both in Kojanoff, doing a harvest in about 2016 
and then we went back to Henry's donger and just sort of set up some gear and started jamming and then now we're still still doing it yeah it was it was an odd one like I played in bands through school and stuff with mates like similar sort of music and Dave was interested in music as well and we'd sort of every now and then at school we'd mucked around together like playing and then um, we kind of just had yeah rained out and harvest one day and we're like oh let's set like the old drum setup that was at home up and in the music room and we just started like drinking beer basically and playing and like mucking around and then it sort of like was fun so we just kept doing it. So how much would you say your farming upbringing has influenced to where you are now? I don't know how, how it sort of influenced music, it's a good question, I'd say it'd be like probably just so I didn't have to farm would be the inspiration. Oh, <laughs> I'm geez, joking. That's harsh. I'd just tell uh, Dad that to annoy him. Yeah, yeah. I'd say I'd say character-wise, like big time. It's yeah. um like the music industry is a very different one to farming. It's probably the other end of the spectrum on a lot of sort of elements, and it's probably good to like come in with a country background, a sort of country aspect, I guess, because you're a bit more practical about things, and yeah, you sort of there get the job done, and nothing's a problem, uh, sort of attitude, and yeah, try, try and be good people, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's that's probably what's influenced us the most. It's just the character side of things um, compared to the music sort of people. Yeah. How do you manage well balance music and helping your family out on the farm? It's not as busy. Well, it's sort of getting busy now. Previously, it hasn't been too busy. Like we've had so much time in between touring, and like we've really only just started getting into it. So we were just always pretty much just working, and then. We'd go out to Perth on the weekends and gig or go up and practice or write. So now it will be probably a bit hard. I think a bit less time on the fun these days. But, yeah, it was pretty easy at the start. Yeah, having folks that, like, were, like, happy about what we're doing so they would be keen for us to go and do it and yeah, take so some work really off or whatever, yeah, so that helped big time at the start. That's probably why we were able to do it, really. Yeah, having time to sort of get into it while we did have a job so sort of thing was definitely hugely important is this something you guys see yourself doing for a while doing music but also still balancing a bit of farm life definitely we had a chat the other day and we're like every summer it'd be nice to sort of at least get two weeks off or like three just to go and do harvest because it's just it's just enjoyable like going back to the farm and sort of getting back to that sort of working life is just it's pretty important when you're touring and you're just sort of always at a pub and always doing that sort of carry on. Going back and doing a bit of work is is really helpful for the brain. Good, good, yeah, good balance. Just doing static tasks. Like when you're touring, it's just so much stimulation. You're always on the road. Like new hotels, like new planes. You're excited about getting on a plane, and um, then yeah, before you know it, you're at Soundcheck at the pub at two two p.m. and they're offering you beers and you. Yeah, then it's 12am and then you're hopping into bed and you wake up and it's the same sort of thing again. So coming back to the farm is like, I think it's a real good thing to just go back and chill out and do what, what I guess most people do, which is a job that sort of is the same thing most days and whatnot. So yeah, it's, um, it's probably an important thing to keep up, I reckon. And to go from that sort of situation to on stage with people singing the words to your songs, was that a bit of a good way to finish harvest it's a good way to start the year for sure like finish harvest and then you sort of get out of that like you say you like going back and working and then when you've got a tour coming up it's pretty exciting so it's it's kind of a double-edged sword really would you rather be singing or shearing sheep 
singing. Fuck. If I could shear sheep, I would like. I'd definitely rather It'd be a shearer. I actually wouldn't mind like bit, bit of coin in it. Bit of, yeah. And I'd moment. have a much, I'd have oh, a much better physique as well, which I wouldn't mind. Yeah. Look like a big, big tank. Don't know, we'd bust my back up though. Yeah. Old Merv's music duo David House and Henry Carrington-Jones, they were speaking with Sophie Johnson about hitting the stage after working on the farm and having harvest every summer. That is it from me for the Country Hour this week. I'll catch you again from 12.30 on Monday. Have a great weekend. It's half past one.